Chapter 14 of A Bullet for Cinderella by John D. MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I sat on a bench in the waiting room in the hospital. Water from my sodden clothing dripped onto the floor. Captain Marion sat beside me. Prine leaned against the wall. A man I didn't know sat on the other side of me. I looked at the pattern of the tiles in the floor as I talked. From time to time they would ask questions in a quiet voice. I told them the complete truth. I lied about one thing only. I told them that Fitzmartin had told me that he had hidden Grassman's body in a barn eight or ten miles south of the city on a side road, in a ruined barn near a burned house. Marion nodded to Prine. He went out to send men out to hunt for the barn. He had gone out once before to send men to the island. I had told how to find the cave, and told them what they would find in the cave. I told them they would find the gun in my car. I lied about Grassman, and I left out what I knew about Antoinette. It would do them no good to know about her. They would learn enough from the Reading police. They did not have to know more than that. I told them all the rest, why I had come to Hilston, everything I had seen and guessed, everything Fitzmartin had said, Timmy's dying statements, all of it, the whole stinking mess. It felt good to tell about it. Let me get this straight, Howard, Marion said. You made a deal with Fitzmartin. You were going to have the girl find the money. Then you were going to turn it over to Fitzmartin in return for Ruth's safety. You made that deal yourself. You thought you could handle it better than we could. Is that it? I thought that was the only way it could be handled. But he crossed me up. He followed us. We could have grabbed him when he got to the river. We'd have gotten to Ruth earlier. If she dies, you're going to be responsible. I looked at him for the first time in over an hour. I don't see it that way. Did he say how he killed Grassman? You told us why he did it. He hit him on the head with a piece of pipe. What do you think the Rossi girl was going to do when you turned the money over to Fitzmartin, assuming that it went the way you thought it would go? I guess she wouldn't have liked it. Why didn't she come and get the money herself, once she knew where it probably was? I haven't any idea. I think she felt she needed help. I think she decided I could help her. I think she planned to get away with all of it. Somehow, after we were both well away from here, when I was sleeping, something like that. I think she thought she could handle me pretty easily. How many shots did he fire into the cave? I wasn't counting. Maybe twenty. A doctor came into the room. Marion stood up. What's the score, Dan? The doctor looked at us disapprovingly. It was as though we were responsible for what had happened to Ruth. I think I can say that physically she'll be all right. She's young and she has a good body. She might mend quite rapidly. It's hard to say. It will depend on her mental condition. I can't answer for that. I've seldom seen anyone handled more brutally. I can give you a list. Dislocated thumb, broken shoulder, two cracked ribs a cracked pelvis. She was criminally attacked. Two broken toes. We nearly missed those. 
She was beaten about the face. That wouldn't have killed her. It was the shock and exposure that nearly did it. Came awfully close to doing it. She's been treated for shock. She's out of her head. She doesn't know where she is. We just put her to sleep. I say I can't estimate mental damage. I stood up. Where is she? The doctor stared at me. I can't let you see her. There's no point in seeing her. I moved closer to him. I want to see her. He stared at me and then took my wrist, put his fingertips on my pulse. He took a pencil flashlight out of his pocket and shone it directly into my eye from a few inches away. He turned to the captain. This man should be in bed. Marion sighed. Have you got a bed? Yes. Okay. I'll have to put a guard on the door. This man is under arrest. But look. Just let him look in the door at Ruth. Maybe he earned that much. I don't know. They let me look. She was in a private room. Her father sat near the bed. He didn't look toward the doorway. He watched her face. She was no one I would have ever recognized. She was puffy, discolored. She breathed heavily through her open mouth. There was an odor of sickness in the room. I looked at her, and I thought of the movie heroines. They go through terror and capture and violence, yet four minutes after rescue they melt with glossy hair and limpid eyes and gown by Dior into the arms of Lancaster or Gable or Brando. This was reality, the pain and ugliness and sickness of reality. They took me away. The formalities were complicated. I had to appear and be questioned at the joint inquest. I told all I knew of the deaths of Antoinette, Christina, Rossi, and Earl David Fitzmartin. I signed six copies of my detailed statement. The final verdict was justifiable homicide. I had killed in defense of my life. Both the money found in Fitzmartin's car and the money in the cave became a part of George Warden's estate. A second cousin and his wife flew in from Houston to protect their claim to the money and whatever else there was. They arrived on Sunday. George and Eloise Warden were buried in the Warden family plot. Fulton, identified through his dental work, was sent to Chicago for his third burial. No relative of Fitzmartin could be found. The county buried him. Grassman's body was found. His brother flew down from Chicago and took the body back on the train. I had told them about Antoinette's clothes and jewelry and the money, the precise amount, that Fitzmartin had taken. The court appointed an executor for Antoinette Rossi's estate and directed that the clothing and furs and jewels be sold and made an informal suggestion to the executor that the funds be used for the Doyle children. When something is dropped and broken, the pieces have to be picked up. The mess has to be cleaned up. They were through with me on Tuesday. Captain Marion walked down the steps of the courthouse with me. We stood on the sidewalk in the sunshine. You're through here, Howard. We're through with you. There are some charges we could have made stick, but we didn't. You can be damn glad. We don't want you here. We don't want to see you back here. I'm not leaving. He stared at me. His eyes were cold. I don't think that's very bright. 
I'm going to stay. I think I know what's on your mind, but it won't work. You've spent all the time you could with her. It hasn't worked, has it? It won't work for you, not with her. I want to stay and try. I've made my peace with her father. He understands. I can't say he approves, but he understands enough so that he isn't trying to drive me off. You're beating your head against a wall. Maybe. Prine wants to run you out of town. Do you? Actually? His face flushed. Stay then, damn it, stay. It will do you no good. I went back to the hospital. Because of a private room, visiting hours were less restricted. I waited while the nurse went to her. The nurse came back. Each time, I was afraid the nurse would say I couldn't see her. She'll see you in five minutes, Mr. Howard. Thank you. I waited. They told me when it was time. I went to her room as before and pulled the chair up to the bed. Her face was not as swollen, but it was still badly discolored. As before, she turned her face toward the wall. She had looked at me for a moment without expression before turning away. She had not yet spoken to me, but I had spoken to her. I had talked to her for hours. I had told her everything. I had told her what she meant to me, and had received no response at all. It was like talking to a wall. The only encouragement was her letting me see her at all. The doctor had told me she would recover more quickly if she could recover from her listlessness, her depression. As on other days, I talked. I could not tell if she was listening. I had told her all there was to tell about the things that had happened. There was no point in repeating it, no point in begging for understanding or forgiveness. So I talked of other things, and other days, places I had been. I told her about Tokyo, about Pusan, about the hospital. I told her about the work I used to do. I conjectured out loud about what I could find to do in Hilston. I still had seven hundred dollars left. I was careful not to ask questions. I did not want it to seem to her as though I were angling for a response. She lay with her face turned toward the wall. For all I knew, she could be asleep. And then suddenly, surprisingly, her hand came timidly from the cover of the hospital blanket. It reached blindly toward me, and I took her hand in both of mine. She squeezed my hand hard once, and then let her hand lie in mine. That was the sign. That was enough. The rest of it would come. Now it was just a matter of time. There would be a day when there would be laughter, when she would walk again in that proud way of hers. All this would fade, and it would be right for her and for me. We both had a lot of forgetting to do, and we could do it better together. This was the woman I wanted. I could never be driven away. This was treasure. End of chapter 14 End of A Bullet for Cinderella by John D. MacDonald Read by Winston Tharp